Well, as Beth said, as we were beginning this morning, we're invited into a rather deep intimacy here as we read this passage this morning. Philip Yancey has written about Jesus that the most powerful message of Jesus was his unquenchable love, especially seen in people who betray him. And Yancey, if I remember right, was thinking about and and writing about Peter and Judas. And in both of them, how they experienced this cycle of hope and fear and disillusionment. And for both of them, as the stakes increased, they both denied their master. And of course, you know, we're all familiar with the story. Judas was remorseful, but apparently not repentant. And he seems to have just kind of accepted the sort of political logic of what he had done and the logical consequences of his deed and then took his own life and goes down in history as literally the greatest traitor of all time. I mean, Judas's name is now synonymous with being a traitor. Peter, on the other hand, seems to be even more deeply humiliated, but still open to Jesus and to having this conversation with him that Dennis just read to us. And whatever happens in Peter leads him, obviously, to being a great leader in the church, leads this revival in Jerusalem that ends up spreading all the way to Rome, where Judas just quit. But Peter repented. That is to say, in this conversation with Jesus, he rethinks his whole life and keeps on following becoming the courageous and key leader that we read about at the birth of the church. And so I wanna help us think about this this morning on two levels. One, there's undoubtedly someone here this morning who's feeling far from God. But secondly, all week as I've thought about this, I don't know why I thank God for Google, I guess, but, but I just sometimes think of Google Maps and I just think of this odd little corner that we're on here. You know, it's a misshapen little corner on a not quite perpendicular intersection. It's this odd little shape of a thing. And all around us are these housetops. I mean, if you just do a Google map, I mean, just, and you pull out from this little corner, all around us are people who I know both in my head as a professor of evangelism and contemporary culture and in my heart as people who are right now experiencing the distance from God that we read about in this story with Peter. I just saw this week the latest stats from the Hartford Institute that only 20% of Americans now go to church. It is by far the lowest it's ever been measured in the history of America. Eight to 10,000 churches will shut their doors this year, never to reopen. Did you catch that? Eight to 10,000 churches in the next 12 months will just simply go out of business and cease to exist. America is now the most religiously diverse nation in the world. So, you know, all of you in this room, and I know not all of you are, so excuse me here for a minute while us middle-aged people date ourselves. (laughs) But can we just say that the neighborhoods of Ozzie and Harriet and Leave it to Beaver and Father's Knows Best are just gone? and they're never coming back. And it's just so important that we don't picture, 
you know, God up in heaven, you know, pacing the golden streets, you know, with his anthropomorphic head held in his anthropomorphic hands, you know, saying, oh, myself, you know. <laughs> I didn't anticipate such a time. Like, you know, God only really knew how to operate amongst white middle-class people. And he's sort of stumped by everybody else who isn't white and, you know, upwardly mobile. But we've got to deal with it. We're not used to living in the most religiously diverse nation in the world, which is now, everybody catch this, look at my hand, the third largest mission field in the world is now America. So you no longer have to get on an airplane to go to Brazil. You don't have to get on a boat to go somewhere, you know, hidden in the Andes. All around us are people like Peter who have known something about God, desperately confused about what it all means, sincerely desperately confused about church and religion and spirituality and Jesus and how he works in this highly scientific technological world, how, it, how he works in the midst of the amazing amount of human brokenness that there is in families and friendships. These are deeply, deeply disturbed people who just honestly from their guts don't know quite what to do or what to make of all, of all this. So they live in this confused disillusionment, ignoring Jesus' invitation that we read this morning to follow him. Yet if I'm right from thinking about this for decades, I believe that somewhere deep within our neighbors is a spiritual hunger. And I think even an admiration for Jesus. But something like Peter, full of guilt, knowing that they've let God down, they just don't know what to do. So as I've said this morning, I see this message functioning on two levels. Maybe there's a handful of you who are feeling far from God this morning, but I also want us to think this morning about how this passage might help us figure out how to talk to outsiders so that we can help the outsiders around us experience Jesus the way Peter did. All right, so here we go. What do you do when God stops making sense? What is one to do when God has stopped making sense to such a degree that they've wandered away from him? And the first thing I'd wanna say from this passage is this. Trust his questioning of you. Just let him go there. Wherever it is that he wants to go, wherever it is that you feel the spirit questioning you, it could be, a, well, a why? Or how'd you come to this conclusion? Or what's underneath this? But just let God go there. And I say that on the confidence that the nature of all reality, when you pull everything back away from stock markets and websites that don't work and governments that can't talk to each other, when you strip it all back, what lies behind all that, the, the actual nature of reality is a trinity of beings who are completely competent love. And you can trust that, that they not only are our God, this Trinitarian God, not only is reality himself, but that he can lead you to that what's real if we'll just kind of go with his questioning of us. I mean, I think that Jesus absolutely knew what he was doing. He wasn't giving us a famous gospel passage that everybody, you know, everybody knows this story of, of 
Jesus and Peter having you know, breakfast on the beach. Everybody knows this story, but he wasn't just giving us a well-known Christian little artifact. He's just gonna picture him going into, G- into Peter's heart. Peter, do you really love me? And we don't have time to get into all the word plays and stuff, but essentially what's happening when Jesus gets to this notion, he's saying something like this. Uh, this would be a good paraphrase. Peter, do you actually will my good? Do you actually purpose my good in this kingdom that I've been telling you about of my father? Or when pushed comes to shove is what's real that you'll protect yourself and what you really will is your good and your safety and your security. And you're obviously now willing to get that even to the point of denying me. So you can see, I mean, this is a tough question that Peter's being asked, but that's why you have to trust it. This is why we have to trust God that he knows where he's going when he starts probing into those things. One of Corey Ten Boom's most famous quotes is this, that when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets really dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still, she said and you trust the engineer. That train's going through there and it gets really scary and dark and it gets a little disorientating. You don't tear up your ticket and throw it away. You just trust the engineer and you sit still and you go with him. Well, the second thing is obviously correlates and that is if you're gonna trust Jesus' questioning, well then be real about what's in your heart because what happens, and this is what I think is happening all around us in millions of human beings, is even when people have had an experience of their sins being forgiven, maybe they came forward at a crusade or they raised their hand somewhere or you know, filled out a card at a prayer breakfast or something, what, what remains so often in our memories are these failures and these wounds. And this is why Jesus compassionately goes to where Peter's pain is. I mean, imagine Peter's pain. I mean, let's just stipulate for the fun of it and for the sake of time that Peter was completely sincere. And let's just stipulate for the fun of it that he was gaga about Jesus. I mean, enough that he left everything he knew to follow him. But then there comes this time where he denies him. And this is not like a a one-off, you know, like it just was one of those, you know, before he could stop himself, you know. this happened over time and it was thoughtful and it happened three times even when Jesus had predicted it would happen. So just think of Peter's pain. Like, I can't believe I did this. Jesus no longer trusts me. Can you think about that? Can you feel that? Jesus no longer trusts me and I gave him good reason and I can just feel, Peter, I've messed up so badly this time that things can never be restored. But of course, the beauty of this story and the reason everybody likes it is that Donald Trump's not having you know, breakfast for him on the beach, right? You're fired. <laughs> but he meets Jesus and even Jesus doesn't berate him with, why'd you fail me? You know, you big dope. No, I think what these two scenes in the gospel passages are meant to show us is something that's essentially formational. 
where again, Jesus is probing Peter. Peter, is there something in you really that's more than just affection for me? Like, are we really in this together? Are you really willing to follow me? And had we had time to read and comment on the rest of the story, hopefully you all read it this week, you know that, that Jesus tells Peter, you know, at the end of your life, you actually are gonna, this is actually gonna be worked out in you. But for now, he's just asking him again, do you will or purpose my kingdom good? Because what Jesus wants here is for Peter to come to terms with him. And this is what, of course, you know, we're all about here at Holy Trinity. This is what we're trying to do. Body, soul, spirit, mind, will, our social self. We're trying to bring all that into alignment with Jesus. But never just for our own piety, but always for the sake of others, so that others would experience our goodness from God as for their benefit. And this is what Jesus is wanting for Peter, to come to terms with this in this holistic way, to bring all of this into alignment, because what Jesus knew when he predicted that Peter would deny him, and what he even knows sitting on the beach that morning, is that Peter, we still got some work to do. Like if we're gonna bring your heart, soul, mind, will, body, and your relational self all into alignment with what I'm doing, you're gonna have to keep come following me. I'm gonna have to still be your rabbi. I'm still gonna have to teach you. And together we are gonna do this because Peter, if you thought warming your hands around that fire with that girl was hard, a day is coming where you're gonna be dragged somewhere you don't wanna go. In your old age, you're gonna be taken even farther out of your present comfort zone. Then the third thing is to put this together with what we, we read in the epistle reading this morning, that we don't just receive forgiveness. Jesus doesn't just give Peter forgiveness here in this story, but he reminds him he's a new creation and that this new creation always leads to being an ambassador of the kingdom. Meaning Jesus doesn't just give him a sort of there, there, pat on the back. But now again, I want you to try to put this together. Peter's devastated that I've given Jesus a reason not to trust me. And Jesus turns it around and says, essentially, Peter, I trust you. Feed my sheep. Care for my lambs. Feed my sheep. He's literally giving Peter his job. You know, Jesus has been the one who's the great shepherd. He's the one who's been caring for and tending the sheep. And now he's about to disappear from the scene forever, bodily speaking, and he says to Peter, I deeply trust you. I am giving you my job. And this, of course, is what Paul's getting at when he says, if anyone's in Christ, you are a new creation. The old's gone, the new's come. But it doesn't stop there. All of this newness, all of this forgiving of the past and, and the bringing of this newness, all this reconciliation to God through Christ is unto something. And that is, it gives us the ministry of reconciliation that God has committed to us, the church, his message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors to all those rooftops we see when we Google Earth away from this little intersection. All those rooftops, Jesus says, I want your life to count in the sense of that the message I've given you would be announced to them, and I don't mean in cheesy, dopey ways that the world and us are rejecting. That's never what I mean. But what I mean is somehow, 
it troubles me somewhere deep in my inner being that people are wandering all over here this morning doing whatever it is they're doing where if you met them at a coffee shop or a wine bar or something, they would give you a very tight rationale for why the church is stupid, for why Christianity as a world religion is bad, uh, maybe for why religion in general is bad. They could give you a very tight rationale for that. But you know what happens when they've got that key interview finally and they're running late and they get to the parking lot and there's not a space to park? You know what still happens? God, you know, could you help me find a parking place here? Like this interview is really important. Or their child gets sick. And then, you know, they find their two-year-old toddler, a toddler for some reason in, in the ER. What, what, they, what do you think they do? They're not consistent because that's not what's going on. What's going on is a kind of veneer over something that is actually really deep in them. And so Jesus gives Peter this fresh challenge, this new command, this new commission to actually share his own work with Peter. So really what, you know, it's hard to know exactly, you can't get in John's mind to know exactly what he's thinking. But it's very possible that, that this whole scene links back to something which gives us our fourth sort of thing, thing to do when we feel far from God and don't know what to do, and that is to actually follow. To Peter's asked here to recommit his life to becoming a disciple and an apostle of Jesus. And this harkens back probably to the greatest invitation any human being has ever heard when Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That is the greatest invitation any human being could hear. Because what Jesus is doing is he's looking out over the crowds and he's seeing people who are alive but dead inside, dead to God, dead to each other, dead to love, dead to goodness, dead to any kind of piety that others would experience for their good. And sort of, so it's sort of like seeing people who are supposed to be human but they're alive more like plants or people who are meant to be human, but they're alive more like animals. They have a kind of life. But Jesus says, if you, if you will come follow me and lay down those inferior kind of lives, then you'll pick up a superior kind of life. Humanity is God intended, life in the kingdom of God. But we know the story. Peter, of course, goes for it and becomes a leader we see in the book of Acts, that we see in his writings. You know, it's fascinating that three of the big themes in First and Second Peter are, I'm a servant and an apostle of Jesus. It's one of Peter's big themes in his own writings. Secondly, big theme for Peter is, do not conform to evil desires. <laughs> I mean, it's everywhere in First and Second Peter. And then thirdly, make every effort to confirm your call and election. Those are three really big themes in Peter's own writings. And so it alerts us that this is the transformation that's available to us, to the spiritually hungry around us, but who are perplexed or pessimistic and even distrustful of the church. I just, again, I just see the people around us here in Orange County with kind of like a sign on their chest saying, gone fishing, right? You remember those, you know, picture a little store in West Virginia or something, you know, or, or around here if, if the surf's really up, you know, gone surfing, you know, 
be back in a couple hours. Yeah, but maybe not. Increasingly so, they're not coming back. So everybody look me in the eye here. 150,000 people a week leave the church. 150,000 people a week right now, every week, are leaving the church. In the years 2010 to 2012, the best we can tell, more than half the churches in America did not have one convert. Not one person came to faith because of their presence in their community. It used to be said of young people, oh, don't worry, they'll come back when they settle down. You know, when they get out of college or when they get married or have kids, it, that was true. 50s, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, that was largely true. Now, six out of 10 of them never come back. They finish college, they get married, they have a baby, and they still don't come back. And it leaves me wondering, is there a way that we can talk to outsiders even at this point? Or is the relationship too strained? Like, is the relationship between the church and non-church world now so strained that we actually, like, can't even really talk? Like, there's not even avenues for, you know, diplomatic relations or something. And it leaves me thinking we can at least start here. Jesus consistently loved Peter and did not reject him. We can at least start there, not rejecting our neighbors who reject us. Because the amazing thing that's seen in Jesus, not just in this story, but Jesus seeing Zacchaeus up, up a tree, Levi the tax collector, the woman at the well, Jesus never saw people just where they were, not just by a snapshot in their life, but he saw the whole movie, not just a frame in the movie, but he saw the whole movie and saw potential in them. So what if the people around us aren't people who hate the church or think we're goofy for being Christians? What if what they are is people for whom God has a plan for them? What if your neighbor or coworker who thinks you're goofy for being a Christian, what if this is true about them? That they are a never ceasing spiritual being. with an amazing potential for a stunningly unspeakable, amazing future in God's renewed cosmos? What if that's who they actually are? Like not our foes. So can we actually believe this? Can we learn to talk to them? And I don't have any like big announcements to make this morning or anything about the church, but I do wanna say this, for me personally, when Advent hits, I don't know why, I just feel like in my guts. When Advent hits in the beginning of this new year, I'm gonna make it my business to try to figure out how to have this conversation with the Peters around us who just don't know quite what to do. Because it's time, we're four years old now, We've been trying to figure out what it means to be Anglicans together and figure out what it means to be a church together and now I think it's time to say, Lord, we, not, we don't just receive your forgiveness, but we receive this commissioning you've given us to be your ambassadors. Amen.